The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. the trumpet in Zion. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel with Pastor Ray Greenlee. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. And this is Ray Greenlee. I pastor the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. May I say some very straight things to you today? I'm not interested in helping you be a better Christian. I'm interested in helping you be a Christian. I'm interested in helping you learn how to talk with God and how to have God talk to you in such a way that you recognize it's God speaking to you. But you have to meet the conditions. You have to be a Christian. A Christian is not a person who ascribes to a certain set of beliefs. A Christian is not a person who has modified their behavior according to some social norm. A Christian is not a person who attends a place called church, like the social club. A Christian is not a person who has a hobby of being religious. A Christian is a person who has been crucified. Not in the process of being crucified. A person who has been crucified, past tense. A person who now has Jesus Christ living in them in reality. A person who has experienced the supernatural moving of God to transform them into a totally new creature, something that has never existed before, the conus, the new creature. This is what a Christian is. A Christian is not a person who struggling with alcohol, weeping before God, saying, next time I won't get drunk, Jesus. That's not a Christian. That person may be a legalist trying to conform their behavior to some expected norm that they think Christians are supposed to look like. No, Christian is a person who has been crucified by Jesus Christ, not by human effort. They have been totally transformed. They're a new creature. The old no longer rules their life. They are now ruled by the Holy Spirit. You see, we've so watered down the meaning of Christian And it's true, the word Christian simply means Christ follower. There were many in Jesus' day who followed him because they enjoyed the show. They loved the 
the bread and the fish. They like being a part of the crowd. They like the social network. They like the feeling that they were a part of something bigger than themselves. But they were not really followers of Jesus Christ. Followers are those who go to the cross, are crucified by Jesus Christ. They die. They're born from above. They are new creatures in Christ. They're not trying to be new. They are new. They're not trying to do better. They are better. They've been changed, transformed. Now, we're going to cover a lot of ground today. And I recognize this is the last day of the month. We are still $580 short of having the money to pay for the radio broadcast for the month of August, but I'm not going to do an offertory day. You're welcome to call the producer. I'll give you the number and and share with him if you want to make a pledge, but I'm walking by faith that Jesus has said he will cover this. He's going to move in the heart of someone or several someones, and the cost will be covered. I've been directed to just teach and to go right at the heart of what the gospel is and begin to finish up now the book of Hebrews. So the phone number, if you'd like to call and either be on the broadcast or share a pledge, the phone number in studio is 877-534-0780. Again, that number is 877 534 0780. You're welcome to call. And Mr. Screener will decide if you should go on the air based on whether you're calling to talk about the same issues I'm dealing with. If you're off in left field, he'll say, call another time. What always gets through is a man or a woman who says, I need to be prayed for. If you need prayer today, if you need to deal with the deep issues of your heart to be crucified with Christ, you are always welcome to call. That's why this broadcast exists. So 877-534-0780. You're welcome to call at any point during the broadcast. If we go to the book of Ephesians, the first chapter we find a very interesting statement, and it is carried through then in the entire first chapter of the book of Ephesians. Paul is writing this book of Ephesians to the ones he calls the holy ones or the pure ones, that is, men and women who have been crucified with Christ. In verse 3, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one having blessed us with every conceivable spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus, just as he and no other picked us out in him before the foundation of the world for us to be holy or pure. Verse 4. 
and blameless before him in love, having predestined us unto sonship through Jesus Christ unto himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he highly favored us in the one having been beloved. So Paul is saying to the church at Ephesus, look, nothing has been withheld from you. So if you say to me, Pastor, I just can't leave this sin, I know you're lying. You're right, you can't leave that sin in your power, but if you're willing to be crucified with Christ, and he is willing to do that, the truth is every benefit has been given to you so that you can have complete victory in your life. If you don't have complete victory in your life, it's because of stubborn refusal on your part to accept the blessings of God and walk in victory by the blood of Jesus. Let's not in any manner think that we can blame God for our continued walking in rebellion against him. It is not God's fault you don't have the victory. He is giving you the victory through every blessing of heaven poured out in Jesus Christ. So all has been done that is necessary. Heaven has been emptied for you so that you can walk clean before God and have the complete victory in righteousness and holiness. Now, I understand, but please hear me as I say this. Jesus did not die on Calvary to give the devil permission to come and ravish your life. He died on Calvary to bring you into the kingdom of light where you have victory over all darkness and over all evil now. Not sometime in the future, but now. Now, how does that happen? Let me read for you in 2 Peter, the first chapter. 2 Peter, the first chapter. I'm going to begin reading with verse 2. Now, words are very important. We freight words with meaning. They are wagons that carry the meaning. Now, you can freight the word grace with the modern church's definition. The word is charis in the Greek. You can freight that word with the meaning that God puts a blanket over you and hides your sin, but allows the devil to continue to ravish you. But that is not the biblical meaning of the word grace. If you go to Titus, the biblical meaning of grace is the divine favor of God that grants you full victory over all sin. It is the divine influence of God that he sends forth from his heart by way of the Holy Spirit, by way of the blood of Jesus, that brings you into total victory. And so Peter writes, grace to you, divine influence of God to you, all the benefits of heaven to you, grace to you. 
and may peace be multiplied by the full knowledge of God. The word knowledge here, to differentiate from the word wisdom, wisdom is the overarching philosophy, but knowledge is the practical day-by-day, how does it work? You need to know the day-by-day, how does it work, much more than you need any wisdom. You don't have to understand what atonement is in its depth. You don't have to understand the incarnation of Jesus Christ in depth. You need to know the person, Jesus Christ, and you need to know how he operates so that as he moves in your life, you're not surprised by his moving. You need to know the practical, this is how it actually works. I mean, I'll go out this afternoon and I'll get in my car and I'll turn the key on. I know how to turn the key on. And when I turn the key on, the motor's going to turn over and it's going to start. Now, don't ask me how that starter works. I frankly don't know. It was Mr. Kettering who invented the electric starter. And he made millions of dollars out of that uh, that wonderful invention so that you don't have to get a hand crank and get out of your car and stand in front of it and crank it with the risk of breaking your arm when it kicks back at you. We don't do that anymore. Likewise, you just need to know how to get in the Christian faith and turn the key on and start the engine. Here's what he says. Grace to you and may peace be multiplied by the full knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as all things for life and godliness have been given us by his divine power, his dynamite, his dunamis, through the full knowledge of the one having called us for glory and moral excellence. You notice we're not just called for glory. We're called to live a righteous life, moral excellence. And you notice this is a reflection. Peter is reflecting now what what Paul was saying in the first chapter of Ephesians. All things for life and godliness have been given to us. So let's be very clear. Any claim on your part that you cannot gain the victory in Jesus Christ is a lie. Any claim that you cannot walk in righteousness, that you cannot stop your sin, is a lie. And until you're willing to admit the lie and give up playing the victim with Jesus you will never enter into the full knowledge and power of being born from above. Now he goes on, verse 4, through which things, that is the things that have been granted to you from heaven, he has given us the precious and great promises 
that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having already escaped from the corruption in the world by lust. So you escape the corruption of lust, you escape the corruption of the world by being crucified with Christ. And then, here are his promises before you. Let me say something that may startle you. Until you enter into the promises of God, God will have no way of grabbing a hold of your life and finishing the process of salvation that he has begun in you. It's by the promises of God that we enter into the maturity of the faith. If you remain a child, you will find bitterness rising up in your heart. You'll find anger rising in your spirit. You'll find the return of lust. You will find that you will begin to rebuild the things that were destroyed by the Holy Spirit when he converted you, when he gave you birth from above. The devil will come and he will find this little baby totally unwilling to grow and he'll devour you. He'll eat you. And many of you have never been willing to enter the promises of God because you were never taught how to enter the promise. And when you began to get some inkling, unbelief arose in your heart. And because of that unbelief, you turned to your own resources and your own abilities. It grieves me. There are many people today who call themselves mature Christians who are just mature religionists. They're not Christians because they have matured in the culture of the Christian church. But they long ago stopped being Christian. They follow the culture of the modern church. And so whatever the modern church does is acceptable to them. The music, the dance, the drama, the show, it's all acceptable. There is no understanding of righteousness. There is no boundary against the wickedness. So one mega church that I know here in Washington, the pastor regularly is into deep pornography. A number of times, members have walked into his office and found him sitting in front of his computer watching his pornography. Would you say he was a Christian? I wouldn't. I'd say he was not a Christian. I would say he was a hireling who has a good salary and a good package of benefits, and a following of people who worship at his feet, but he's leading them in darkness, not in light. The Spirit of God is not in this man. 
you have a very brief conversation with him, and you know immediately there's no presence of God in his life. His interests are the modern activities in the professional sporting world. His interest is in the latest vacation, the latest cruise. His interest is in everything of the flesh and nothing of Jesus. I stood and talked with him for some time, and I kept coming back and asking him questions about Jesus and about his walk with Jesus and about the growth of the congregation in the Spirit of God. He truncated every question I asked him and immediately went back to the foolishness of this world. He was uncomfortable talking about Jesus. He's not a Christian, but he's a pastor. And he gives his little lecture once a a week. And everybody is inspired. He tells his little stories and everybody tears up. Or he tells his jokes and everybody laughs. But there's no presence of Jesus either in his life or in the church. Please hear me. The only way you can enter into the life of Christ is by having been crucified with Christ. And once having been crucified with Christ, you must immediately begin to enter his precious and great promises that through these promises you can become partakers of the divine nature. You see, the only way you grow up in Jesus is to enter into the promises of God. Now, which promises of God shall I enter in? Well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Incredible promise of God. So you are called to believe in Jesus. Not in the flesh, but in the spirit. You're called to begin to take a stand on the word of God. And let me tell you what will happen. you will be brought into a place of a financial lack or you'll be brought into a place of emotional trauma with a loved one or your children will begin to totally blow up, misbehave or you'll lose your job or there'll be a crisis at work. Now the question is, will you try to resolve that in the flesh? Will you become defensive and hard-edged? Or will you recognize that this is an attack by Satan? And will you go to Jesus and cry out before him until he answers you? And he most often will answer you with what we call a rhema word. 
A rhema word is a God-breathed word. A rhema word is a word that comes to us that will require cooperation and courage on our part in fulfilling that rhema word. It will require sacrifice on our part. Any promise of God that's worth its salt, and all of them are, will require cooperation and courage and sacrifice on your part to step into that promise. Now, a rhema word also is one that calls you to the task or duty or mission that must be carried out, either in the healing of your relationship, in the disciplining and loving and creating boundaries for your children so that you stop yelling and screaming at them. It will require by way of the Spirit, that you cooperate with the Holy Spirit, you take courage in the word that God has spoken to you, you begin to sacrifice your your time and your energy and your money to the accomplishment of that word that you have received. And now you begin to see the Holy Spirit moving through your life to set right what is wrong that is causing the crisis for you. Now, this principle I'm speaking about is the way the men and women of Hebrews 11 give us an example of living. Now, let's be clear. Abraham did not always walk in maturity with God. God came and told him, this time next year you will have a son. What's he do? He follows Sarah's suggestion and he takes the Egyptian woman and she gives birth, and this was after the culture of the day, not after God's heart, after the culture of the day. He took a second wife, the slave woman of his wife. And she gives birth to a donkey of a man, a flesh man, who has been a trouble to the children of Israel to even this day. Fighting, bitter, battling. That's what God said would happen. Because Abraham was unwilling to stand by faith and do what God told him to do. So he created his Ishmael. Now, I have to be very kind to Abraham because while I've not created an Ishmael son, I've created many Ishmael projects. I have thought God was not moving quickly enough, and so I had to help God. Can I tell you, God never needs your help. He only needs your obedience. He'll work it out. He's the one who's the mind that figures it all out and makes it work. 
So let's take a few minutes, and I want to review for you the ground we have covered in the book of Hebrews. And then we're going to wrap up the book of Hebrews. It's been a wonderful study. Many revelations of God have been granted to us in this book of Hebrews. In Hebrews, the first chapter, we find a very clear outline of who Jesus Christ is. There are three places in Scripture that are most obvious in telling us who Jesus is and who he was. The Gospel of John, the first chapter. The church letter of Colossae. Colossians 1 tells us Jesus was the creator God in Genesis 1.1. But also then in Hebrews, the first chapter, we find who God is, who Jesus is, that he's God, omnipresent, omniscient. He never laid down his godhood when he came to earth. Instead, he became fully man while remaining fully God. Chapter 2, we find a further description of who Jesus is and what he did for us in making atonement for our sins. Chapter 3, we find that Jesus was greater than Moses, And up to this point, everyone in the Hebrew family would have considered Moses to be the greatest. And the writer of the book of Hebrews says, no, now Jesus, Jesus is the great one. Chapter 4, the most wonderful revelation of God is granted to us when we discover that the Sabbath day in the heart of the Decalogue is no longer in the New Covenant, keeping the seventh-day Sabbath. But instead, we have been granted now a seven-day Sabbath. I was raised in the Seventh-day Adventist church, and sometimes I still have contact with some family members or some friends who are Seventh-day Adventist. And they used to regularly ask me the question, Pastor Ray, knowing what you know about the Sabbath, how can you now not keep the Sabbath holy? And I quickly say to them, oh, wait, 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 you've misunderstood me. I keep the seventh-day Sabbath. I always keep the Sabbath. But I also keep the first-day Sabbath and the second-day Sabbath and the third-day Sabbath and the fourth-day Sabbath I keep every day of the week. I don't break the Sabbath on any of those days. Jesus is my Sabbath. I am hidden in him. This is the truth that's revealed in the fourth chapter of the book of Hebrews. We can enter into that Sabbath day rest that is our salvation. And never is a Christian called to go earn money by working. No, we seek first the kingdom of God, that is the royal authority of God, and we seek his righteousness, and when we seek his authority to be exercised over our life, and we seek his righteousness, his purity, 
his holiness. When we seek those two things, first to be under the authority of God, and secondly, to seek after his purity and righteousness, then everything else Jesus said would be given to us. It's the pagans who run after work to earn money so they can pay the grocery bill or the mortgage or the car payment. Now, does that mean you should quit your job? No. That's your place of assignment to minister the name of Jesus Christ. And the resources are to flow through that place of assignment. If you're a teacher, you go to that class and you find Holy Spirit direction in how to lift up Jesus in that secular place. Well, pastor, I might get fired. Well, that's all right. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you will be persecuted. Isn't that what the word says? So what are you expecting? A marshmallow ride to heaven? Come on. This is not about graham crackers and marshmallows. This is not s'mores. This is the bloody battle between righteousness and wickedness. And so wherever you go, you are sent there as an emissary of Jesus Christ. Oh, but pastor, if I lose my job, I can't pay for my car loan and I can't. Did Jesus tell you to take that car loan out? Well, no, but I had to have a car. So you didn't know how to enter into the promises of God to find that car, did you? Remember, we opened this saying everything has been granted from heaven that you need and that Jesus will supply it? Oh, wait a minute, Pastor. You're trying to tell me that Jesus will even supply a car for me? Yeah, if you wait for him. Now, I'm in a very interesting place right now. I'm driving a a 1976 Camry, Toyota Camry. It's leaking oil dangerously. I have to fill the gas tank and fill the oil. It takes about two quarts a week right now, sometimes three quarts in a week. I have to put cardboard down in my garage to catch all the oil that's flowing. And they want $3,500 to do the repair, the mechanic shop. Well, what should I do? I can tell you what I should do. I should go to the promises of God and I should stand and command that this mountain of this car be removed from me. And that Jesus bring to me what he desires, either the repair or a new car. I don't have to drive a BMW. I don't have to be seen in a Mercedes to be considered successful and important. No, I have to guard myself lest I drive up to a Christian gathering among all of their wonderful, beautiful cars and become proud of my old car and somehow feel righteous because I'm driving a 20-year-old car. No, I'm not allowed to do that either. 
You see, the car is simply transportation between two points where Jesus has called me to go. It's not an ego issue. You see, when we begin to follow Jesus Christ, we give up all of those ego issues and we're willing to receive from the hand of Christ only what he chooses to give us. And if you've not yet entered into that vow, I urge you today, if you are a true follower of Jesus, I urge you to make the vow to Jesus that says, I will only receive from your hand, Jesus, what you choose to give me. I will not go out and grab on my own. Well, how do you do that and not die? Well, that's the point. You do die. You finish the crucifixion process. And you wait on Jesus. I mean, I I brought this amount of $580 that were short this month. And I said, Lord, do I go on and do a third day of offertory? No. Stand by faith. I'll cover it. Okay. My heart's at peace. Jesus said, I'll cover the cost of the 580 that you're still short for radio. Was I to do the offertory? Absolutely, because that gave you an opportunity to be blessed by Jesus. Well, what do I do now? I wait on the Lord. I stand by faith on his promise that if I would seek his authority and I would seek his righteousness, this will be given to me. Please understand. Jesus Christ holds all of the resources and secrets of the universe. And he is saying to us in Ephesians, the first chapter, and he's saying to us in Second Peter, all of this is available to you. All of heaven is given to you. Will you take the promises of God and begin to stand on them? Now, I, I do need to say one further thing, and then we're going to move into the next chapter. As soon as you begin to stand on a promise, that promise will come and stand on your head. What do I mean? I mean you're going to be tested on whether you will believe the word of Jesus regarding that promise or whether you're going to intervene in some way to try in the flesh to rescue yourself. Can you go to the prayer closet and stand on the promises of God and see the physical realm changed because of your prayer closet time? If you can't, you're either not a Christian or you're very new and immature and you need to quickly learn how to go to the prayer closet but usually it means that you've not been crucified with Christ yet. I'm being honest. If you cannot affect the physical realm by your intercession, 
it most often signifies that you walk in the flesh and not in the spirit of the living God. This is why I always continually invite you to come to the National Prayer Chapel to be around other people who are who are choosing to walk in the Spirit and they share their struggles and they share their, their victories. In fact, our time of praise and worship is not a band. Our time of praise and worship is opening the mic for anybody who would like to to come forward and give that shout of victory they had that week in Jesus and testify to what he has done or come and say, please, I'm not making it. Would you pray for me? So that's why I invite you to come to the prayer chapel. And then also, the messages are very straight and you have an opportunity to talk with me and to talk with others as they have been on this journey and share together your life in Christ. Now, chapter 5 in the book of Hebrews begins to talk about how Jesus dealt with these issues I'm describing. I want to read for you what Jesus did so that you'll have some concept of what you're going to have to do. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, this is chapter 5 of Hebrews, verse 7, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Death was constantly coming and threatening Jesus when he was on this earth, and he knew that finally his atonement would be made on the cross. And so he would constantly come apart, and in that place, he would offer up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears. Have you ever gone into the prayer closet with loud cries and tears, or were you afraid your family would hear you and you'd be embarrassed? Until you have stood on the promise and it has stood on your head to such a point that you know if Jesus doesn't answer you, you are going to die, you have never prayed like Jesus prayed. And then it says he was heard because of his reverent submission. In other words, Jesus' prayers were answered because he did not rise up in pride which would have been sin. He did not rise up in anger, which would have been sin. Instead, he totally submitted himself to the Father. He learned obedience from what he suffered. Why did he suffer? Because he was standing in the promises of God. And when you stand in the promise of God, there is a time of suffering until that prayer is answered. You cannot grow in Jesus Christ if you are unwilling to suffer. This is not a cakewalk. It is a battle. It is a bloody fight. The powers of darkness will come against you and try to sweep you away with lust, with anger, with bitterness, with hurt feelings. 
And you're going to have to go into the prayer closet and cry out with tears and loud cries until you have broken through and the Spirit of God has come and spoken his word, his rhema word into your heart. He learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect or mature, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. He then turns in chapter 5 and begins to talk about, look, let's, let's go on to maturity. Let's not talk about the baby stuff anymore. I was always curious about what he meant, and finally the Lord began to reveal to me what he meant. What he means is let's really talk about Jesus now. Let's go deep in who Jesus is. And so immediately he begins to talk about the priesthood of Melchizedek. He begins to teach about the high priest of the new covenant. He begins to talk about the new covenant where the law is now written in my mind. It's written on my heart. And now when I'm doing my own will, I'm doing acts of righteousness. I'm walking in the spirit of the living God the old nature is removed from my heart and from me so that now I'm not spending all of my time fighting against the old nature because now I've been given a new nature, a new heart. Then he goes into the Old Testament in chapter 9, and he talks about the high priest. He talks about the blood. Chapter 10, he really nails down what's going to happen if we continue to sin against this wonderful Savior that's been granted to us. Chapter 10, verse 26, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we receive the knowledge, that is, after we receive the how does it work of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Please, may I say this to you? It takes time to be holy. It takes dedicated time to be made pure by the blood of Jesus. And once having been washed and made clean, it takes a great deal of time and effort reading the Word of God submitting to the Word of God, doing the things the Holy Spirit prompts you to do, it becomes consuming of your time and your energy and your money. Now, if you're going to be involved in business, you are involved in business at the direction of the Holy Spirit, not out of your flesh or desire to be rich. Now, if you desire to be a professional, a doctor, a nurse, whatever it is, it's not out of your ego. It is out of a call to service in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, everything is given to Jesus. 
I had a dream many years ago. It stayed with me. It was in a huge cathedral, beautiful stained glass. <laughs> I was a part of a long line of men and women. We were pulling our carts down the aisle to the front, and our carts were piled full of all of our favorite things. And we were manacled, chained to that pull cart. And as we came down to the front, a man stood there in a robe, and he had a book. And there he asked, Name, please. We gave him our name. I gave him my name, Raymond C. Greenley. He waved me forward. He waved me forward into a huge fire. And as I pulled my cart into that huge fire, the manacles dropped off my hands and my arms, and the cart was consumed. And I walked out the other side dressed in white. I walked into that fire dressed in dark brown, dirty brown. I walked out clean, white linen, purified by the blood of Jesus. Have you walked through that fire yet? We have just a few minutes left. Tomorrow will be the last day of the week. I'm going to go into, again, a brief review of chapter 11, 12, and the concluding exhortations in chapter 13. Now, please know, this walking with Jesus is serious business. If you are a casual Christian that goes to church when you feel like it, you pay some tithe and offerings when you feel like it, you treat others as you choose to treat them, and you are busy arranging and directing your life, you are not a Christian. You are not a Christian. A Christian is one who has been crucified with Christ, has been transformed into a new creature in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. It is a supernatural work of grace that comes when we come repenting of our sin. What does repent means? It means to confess that I am wrong and that he is right. It means that I turn aside from my way of life and I turn to Jesus. And I now covenant with him to only receive from his hand what he chooses to give to me. I no longer walk in the flesh or in the desires of the flesh. I am made into a metamorphosed creature. I am changed by the power of Jesus. And now I am called to begin to enter into his promises. And I search the scripture for those promises. And I begin to enter into those promises. And I begin to see everything in my life shift and change as the will of God is exercised over my life. There is now a total difference in the way I spend my time. 
I don't sit in front of the television anymore. I don't sit down and and enjoy all of the worldliness of the professional sports. I've turned aside from the world, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. I now seek Jesus with all my heart. And we're out of time. I want to pray with you. Oh, Lord, I lift up my brother and my sister today, and I say, Jesus, would you bring revival? Would you bring renewal to your people? Will you call your people out of darkness into the light? Will you cause us to become serious about our walk with you, Jesus, so that you can be serious about taking us to heaven? Lord, have your way. I pray in your holy name. Amen. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee. I pastor the National Prayer Chapel. I'd like to see you this Sunday. I invite you to come. We meet at 12 noon. We're located at the All Saints Anglican Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Let me give you the address. It's 14851 Gideon Drive, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22192. Stand with me in prayer. Stand with me in obedience to Jesus. Pray for revival in our nation. God bless you. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. Before the presence of his glory.